I'm Dr. Tony Salerno, and this is People, Perspectives, and Policies, a podcast produced by the NYU McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research. This podcast focuses on one of the consequences associated with the process of psychiatric deinstitutionalization, such as the unprecedented number of mentally ill people in jails and prisons. The combination of criminal justice policies, policing practices, and inadequate community treatment and support systems have all contributed to this alarming reality. This podcast will discuss contributing factors and thoughts on how to reverse this disturbing trend. I am the Innovation and Implementation Officer at the McSilver Institute and have been a New York State licensed psychologist for over 30 years. Today, we'll hear from two remarkable individuals to talk about the intersection of mental health and the criminal justice system. The first is my dear friend, Linda Rosenberg. Linda previously served as Associate Commissioner for the New York State Office of Mental Health and is the past CEO of the National Council for Mental Wellbeing. The second is Helen Skip Skipper. She's the Executive Director of the New York City Peer Justice Initiative. Skip is a leading voice in the city advocating for the integration of those like her who have been involved with the criminal justice system into treatment programs for current justice-involved individuals. Linda and Skip have remarkable experience and insight into these issues, and it is a pleasure to have them join me on this episode of People, Perspectives, and Policies. So let me just start off this, this podcast with um, some infam- statistics, some information, so that we can have a, an understanding of the scope and the prevalence of this problem, because today's podcast is about in some ways, the criminalization of mental illness. And what have we learned over the years? Uh, and where are we now? So let us let me just describe a little bit where we are in terms of uh, the current situation. The percent of people in state prisons who have been diagnosed with a mental disorder is 43%. In locally run jails, we're at almost the same amount. Number of people experiencing serious psychological distress in jails, uh, 25%. The percent of people in federal prisons who reported not receiving any mental health care while incarcerated, two-thirds. In state prisons, 75%. Three-quarters of folks who are struggling with mental health problems are unlikely to get anything that would be considered supportive treatment and care. Percent of police shootings that involve the mental health crisis is almost 30%. Portion of people jailed three times within a year who report having a moderate or serious mental illness, another 27%. And the lasting effects of incarceration. Suicide risk uh, is very high among uh, folks who have been incarcerated uh, and also have a mental health problem. The stresses of incarceration seems to make things a lot worse. Having a mental illness associated with increase of up to 170% in the odds of extended solitary confinement. So we can go on and on around some of these numbers, right? And it paints a pretty dismal picture of what's happened. So one of the questions I would like us to discuss is how did we get here? What were the perhaps policy or social changes that has led to such a high percentage of folks in our prisons and jails who have a a serious mental health or substance use Diagnosis. So let me just kind of throw it out there and um, and start the conversation that way. Linda, do you have uh, anything to? How would you how would you see it? Because you mentioned before you feel like a little bit 
of having a little blame in all of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Certainly on, on the mental health and what we provide for people and how we provide it who are living in the community um, before uh, they get to the point of incarceration and certainly post-incarceration. So definitely, and you know, um, we can talk about that. But when I think about this larger issue as a country, and first of all, the number of people we have incarcerated in this country, right? And now we're talking about, you know, and I tend, because of my experience, to focus on people with serious mental illness. Mm -hmm. And when we look at that, you know, I began my career during the period of deinstitutionalization. They were closing state psychiatric hospitals, and rightly so. You know, I worked in one of them. I saw the conditions. I saw how people were treated. Um, and it was, it, it really uh, committed me to the development of community services. But, but at the same time, I think we almost, you know, there's expression about you, you throw away everything and you don't keep any of the good part. Right. Um, I think this trans institutionalization from state psychiatric centers to jails and prisons is real. It's not the only problem, but it's a real problem. Right. Um, the other thing I think as our country has become richer and the rich have become richer, the gap with people who are poor. And that's why I often think about the political determinants of health, not the social determinants, because it's the policies we choose to have and not have that create the kind of poverty and trauma and stress that people live with every day. And that is a driver of incarceration, I believe. So that's just a little of how I see the world. Yeah, you know, I, I kind of have a parallel experience. When I, I, I wasn't planning to go into this work around Siri, with serious mental illness. I did an internship in 1980. Linda was a social worker, you know, at the time. And um, I was thinking of just doing a year and then going back to education, which was really my interest. And what my experience was, gee, what an incredible opportunity. We're now in this huge social phase of the institutionalization, taking people out of these warehouse hospitals, bringing them into the community. And I thought to myself, what could be more meaningful than that? And the promise of that was people would get better, right? That we had new medications, we had treatments, we had psychiatric rehabilitation. And that coming into community, people were going to do better. And then you kind of look at what the consequences, two major consequences. People are dying like a lot earlier than, than they were when they were in the hospital, mm -hmm. yeah. right? And secondly, they're spending a lot of time, right? Now, the estimates is about half a million people who are currently, if you took a snapshot right now, in prisons and in hospital, uh, in prisons and state prisons and jails, you would pretty much find that about half a million people across the country. That's like huge. And whoever anticipated they're living that. on the streets. And they're living on those who aren't in the jails right. are living on the streets. So exactly. Yeah. Yes, uh, Skip, let us know um, your reaction to yeah, some of these conversations. Definitely would have to take that just a bit deeper. Now, I listened to both of you speak about where did we come from? We do have to speak about racism and classism oh. that permeates the United States and people who are not the normative who are not part of power and privilege, frequently get the end of the stick. We get the short stick. Then we need to jump to mass incarceration, which was started basically because of the war on drugs. And the war on drugs was literally pointed toward, and I hate to use this terminology, but this is the social construct of it all. 
to oppressed and marginalized communities. Yeah. Not saying that it stayed there, but it was directly pointed towards that where these are the communities that felt the brunt of mass incarceration. And, and you know, Skip, we have something that's gone on even more recently that speaks to the issue of racism and what we do when um, it affects people of color versus affecting mm -hmm. white people who have some degree mm -hmm. of privilege, right? And that mm -hmm. is our whole issue about crack cocaine versus opioids. I mean, you saw it starkly, right? Yes. When it was an opioid yes. problem, it became a treatment problem. When it was mm -hmm. a crack cocaine problem, it was an incarceration solution. Exactly. And so we lived this very recently. And mm -hmm. even as I talked to the emergency room, the CPEP at Columbia, which is the mm -hmm. psychiatric emergency room, what they see are not opioid issues. They see alcohol and cocaine issues as a frontline mm. issue of people who are in ERs. And we can have a whole conversation about the lack of integrated treatment. Um, exactly. Treatment and mental illness. And that, what this whole point boils down to is, is simply a lack of opportunity. I think Amartya Sen talked about the equality of opportunity. And we don't have equality of opportunity where one person from Harlem and one person from Fifth Avenue and 50th Street, so to speak, they mm -hmm. both could become addicted or have mental health issues. But the person from Fifth Avenue has access to world-renowned clinicians. A person from Harlem does not. And then we have literally a country that is not recognizing of what is needed for people with behavioral health issues. And for so long, it has been warehoused. It has been criminalized them, put them up under the jail, but nobody has been using a trauma-informed approach and looking at people, not about what you did, but about what happened to you. And I have personal experience in this. I spent 25 years cycling in and out of the criminal justice system. Every time I went in, I was addicted to drugs that crack cocaine you was talking about, homeless and suffering from an unchecked mental illness. I went in that way. Every time I came out, I came out that same way, not pointed toward treatment, not offered support. And sooner <laughs> or later, I'd be back in again for the same, with every same thing. And then Skip and Tony, for me, it's what we've created on the treatment side, this mm -hmm. complex set of organizations, multiple mm -hmm. organizations, mm -hmm. often doing very similar things, each run independently with its own board, its own rules mm -hmm. of admission. Mm -hmm. The calls I get from family and friends, even those who have privilege, call mm -hmm. because they cannot get access to care. Someone I know is desperately trying to get into a day program for adolescents who are diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. Mount Sinai's wait list is closed. So mm -hmm. this ability to navigate and, and you have to know what to navigate. And, you know, if you don't have someone very sophisticated, you can't even figure out. Uh, mm -hmm. We have one young man we're involved with who's involved with five different agencies, right? One mm -hmm. for treatment, one for AOT, 
one for care management, one for housing, and one for something else. I don't even remember. And why. nobody is talking to each other. There are hours in the day. So I think we have to streamline and have accountability. When you look at this young man who recently was killed on the subway, right? I mean, who really was responsible? Exactly. And who he was known to all of these agencies. He was known to street outreach, case management. But who do we hold responsible? I hold government to begin with. But then Mm -hmm. who have they delegated this to? And who's overseeing that? Well, you know, it's interesting Mm -hmm. in listening to both of you. If we want to answer that question, how did we get here? Well, the answer seems to be it intersects with uh, racism uh, and discrimination uh, Mm -hmm. and, you know, policies that have, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, really increased the population that along with uh, issues around access, you know, to care, Mm -hmm. communication, coordination. Yeah. It sounds like this is a expected outcome. Yeah. This is what you should expect. Yeah. When you I don't think we knew it though, Tony. Right. At least the part of building this community service, you know, services. Right. We yes. thought we were doing the right thing. Actually, government promoted the idea of choice. So you'd have multiple agencies mm-hmm. not realizing that it was impossible to navigate all those agencies. Right. Right. So some of it was mm-hmm. unintentional, some of it quite intentional, though, is what your point is. Well, out. I think the point and you make is that yeah, go ahead, go ahead, skip. No, no, I was going to say, and not to mention it being unintentional, the community agencies were underfunded, not adequately staffed, and so forth and so on. And that continues even to today. Oh, yeah. We yeah. don't have enough of trained behavioral health workforce. These well, we don't pay. Agency. Exactly. You, know, exactly. you get what you pay for. We don't yeah. pay. It's considered low regard work. And so exactly. you can't recruit. And when you can recruit, you can't retain. Right. Right. People you can't have retain. a low unemployment rate in this country. People have other choices. Right. We have a high exactly. unemployment rate within exactly. the behavioral health industry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, no, but these so, community agencies are not being adequately funded so that yeah. all of that can trickle down. Um, but, it's, me, it's, it's ridiculous how this is set up. Well, let me, let me ask you sort of like think about it in, in another way, because in some ways we're sort of um, making the assumption that if we just strengthen the behavioral health care system, that that will do it. At the same time, there's a recognition oh, no. of these political determinants of you yes. know, the way this interfaces with uh, those with uh, with poverty, which is, yes. a, is a perfect pipeline uh, and trauma and poverty together is a perfect mm-hmm. pipe, pipeline to jails and prisons. Well, that's what you see mm-hmm. in Appalachia, right? Yes. There it's a white problem, but right. it is the same kind of driver, right? Poverty, yes. stigma, trauma. Right. Yes, and, yes. And, and to be criminalized, not only because you're poor, but also because of the color in your skin and also because you happen to suffer from a behavioral health condition. You have all of these oppressors on your head and it's just uh your nail and someone is pounding a hammer at you and digging you deeper and deeper and you know and all of this is just too much and what is our city's response um right now we have involuntary confinement we 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 have an edict from our great mayor who says look go around and pick up people off the street who look homeless i bet you they're suffering from mental illness yeah can find them 
I mean, so, so Skip, I, I, I'm going to be a bit provocative. I empathize mm-hmm. with the mayor to some extent, because mm-hmm. what is the solution? It isn't just funding the organizations we have more or creating more organizations. We've been doing that now for 40 or 50 years. One of the issues, of course, is housing. And we can have a whole discussion about uh, inadequate yeah. housing for discussions. people. I mean, right. you. <laughs> Huge, it's a huge issue in every major city. But I think the other issue is we don't have enough hospital beds. So even mm-hmm. people who want to be in the hospital, this young man, mm-hmm. right, Jordan, was yelling, you know, take me to jail, you know, feed me, mm-hmm. take care of me. You can't get into a hospital and Hospitals don't want to have psychiatric beds. Nobody wants to run them because they don't make money on them. So one of the issues we have really is there is no advocacy for decent intermediate hospital care because it's not in the interest of any group to stand behind that. And I know that's a bit provocative. But I see it. I see it in what hospitals talk about. They don't want to reopen beds, psychiatric beds that closed during COVID. Um, and I mm-hmm. they don't want to run community services. So there's no continuity of care after someone is hospitalized for a few days because they can't break even on that either. OK, but what I see it is that we're at a conjuncture. Yes, we need more hospital beds, but we need other supports too. Not everyone needs to be hospitalized. There are different right. levels of care. Agreed. Everything needs to be shored up. But what doesn't need to happen is people who are not trained making split decisions, snap decisions about you suffer from a mental illness and it's going to involve public safety. So I need to just pick you up and confine you. That's something we don't need. And the people who are supposed to be out there doing that are not adequately trained. So we have a whole range of possibilities on how we can fix this situation. And it does involve Care coordination, it involves people talking to each other, it involves more housing, it involves more trained staff, it involves the incorporation of peers, those with lived experiences, to help alleviate the worker stat, uh, uh, shortage. It involves more outreach, it involves more community, but most of all, it involves the city just sitting down and taking a look at where it's going with this issue, what it's trying to do and figure out the right way to do it. Nowhere in America could a black man choke a white man to death and walk away. Nowhere. And that goes back to those deep seated issues we talked about before the racism and the classism. You know, I think in some ways what you're suggesting is we have to kind of reimagine the system differently. You know, right yes. now we have like we have like a system. So we say, OK, let's let's bolster this part of the system up. Like let's have more hospital beds. Right. Or someone says, no, no, no let's have more diversion types of programs. Right. right? Yeah. Well, let's have more peer. You know, it's like we have kind of a system yeah. and then trying to see how we could fix certain aspects of yeah. it. But you're suggesting, I think, Skip, is one steps back. And we of course, we usually come from what's familiar, what we've been mm-hmm. trained or experienced. but how can we reimagine the system 
so in a way that would actually you know, Tony, address all of these it's issues. It's like reimagining healthcare. Yeah. We can't reimagine any of this because there are vested interests in every part of it that currently exists. And you're talking about tremendous political will. And unless a country or a community is in tremendous fiscal crisis, and you can take advantage of that, you have mm-hmm. vested interests at the table that really keep you stuck and very little leadership that's willing or even able to reimagine and really fundamentally change how you do business. So then let's reimagine it from a public safety point of view, because it is the media representation that is the driver of the ideas and thoughts about how this is so harmful to public safety. I don't feel safe. I don't feel safe. You have these people running around in the streets, but it's actually... These people of which I am a part of that community are the ones that are getting hurt or getting killed or not receiving the services. Um, first of all, we need to stop media representation because they blow everything up out of proportion and make it worse Absolutely. than it seems. Um, and everybody leans into that. Like we all have our dose of news wherever we get it from. We're getting news from the wrong places and we're believing the wrong places. And, and it's on twenty four seven. So they exactly. have to kill a lot exactly. of hours. Um, exactly. So, you know, when there's a storm in Oregon, um, people I know we think it's all about it. <laughs> because it's on constantly. Exactly. But we need to look at these individualistic pieces and we need to build up each individualistic piece and together it makes a whole. Do we need beds? Yes, we do. But mental illness, as we know, there are levels to it. There are degrees to it. What is right for me might not be right for the next person or the next person after that. And, and we need to look at spend, all of that. You shouldn't spend your life in a hospital. So we're no, not talking no. about going back to state hospitals where you lived your life. We're talking about building and shoring up supports and services and assistance needed in the community. Um, When I think about all of this, um, Socrates, and I'm going way, way back, and no, I was not there. I was not there. I I was not there. I'm only day over 18. Remember that. Um, (laughs) He had a chance to escape from an unjust imprisonment. He said no. He said, because I believe in my city, my city has raised me, my city has fed me, my city has educated me, I have a compact with my city, I believe my city will take care of me. Unfortunately, Socrates, uh, you you were wrong, because your city eventually did what they did. But let's flip that around. We are denizens of this city. We are citizens of the city. The city does have a compact with us, and that compact is to give us the assistance and support we need when we need it. It is not for you to run up to the top of the mountain when something detrimental happens. It is to have these supports in place before we get that far. So on a lot of levels, the ball has been dropped by the city who is supposed to take care of its citizens. And we need to go back to that and build 
upon that. You, 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 all, you guys mentioned something important, I think, as well, and that has to do with how public perceptions and public attitudes get shaped yeah. mm-hmm. you know, around their understanding. There's a lot of myths out there uh, for many, as long as you just look, lock them up. I don't care if you put them in a hospital or you put them in a prison, <clears throat> as long as uh, I feel safer. That's basically yeah. what it ultimately comes down to. Most folks yeah. don't have a much of a sophisticated understanding Absolutely. and the way in which people with mental illness are portrayed. Right now, the connection between gun violence and mental illness is being strengthened for political reasons. You know, mm-hmm. we don't want to talk about limiting guns. Let's talk about it's mental health. And you just make that mm-hmm. association, right? So that's keeping strengthening these sort of perceptions of that really is part of like fear, you know, fear mongering. So we mm-hmm. have that that issue going on as well. And I was curious also, Skip, because I want to take advantage mm-hmm. of your, your insights based upon your experience. You bumped up against a lot of different, quote, mm-hmm. services uh, and, and, or entities in the community that mm-hmm. were re- reacting to or responding to some of the problems that you were experiencing, mm-hmm. right? And are there things that you bumped up against along the way that you found like that really worked for me? That was like really, really helpful. Uh, and it may not, you know, whatever that might be. Could you share a little bit of that? Because mm-hmm. I think that's a unique insight that you have of from mm-hmm. an, your own experience. What aspects of this, this complex system that you encountered that you said, you know what, this really was this worked for me? Mm-hmm. Well, some of the many things I encountered was, and this is one of the many drivers of why I'm a peer, was peer support. Unfortunately, during the time that I was going in and out of the criminal justice system, that wasn't had. But I frequently today think about what would have happened if I had met Skip when I was cycling in and out. If I had met a peer like Skip, would I still be cycling in and out? And the answer is always no. So we have that that extra extra valued add of lived experience of someone that I can look to and look up to and and be mentored by who's going through the same exact things that I've gone through, but yet made it on the other side. Like I really well, I want to know how you did that because guess what? I want to give me some of that too. So that's one thing. Um, Supports, more supports. And when I say more supports, so far and for a lot, supports are built in a black and white model. Either you are or you aren't. Is you or ain't you? People are not really built on that black and white. Yes, I am. No, I'm not. There are many, many shades of gray or white, however you want to look at it. But some of these systems are built so rigid that even if you aren't, either you get nothing or you get more than what you really need, which comes out again to nothing, because there are no shades of gray. It's too rigid. And then you have systems that want to fight you (laughs) because you don't quite qualify. I can remember being in a homeless system, but working and my case manager running around the office showing off my pay stub to everybody. And she wasn't showing it off because she was proud of me. She was showing it off because I was at that point working poor, but I made more than her. And she had to fly that around, you know, but that was a rest stop for me. Skip is one of the things that that helped you along your journey becoming an advocate. 
Was that something that when you realized you had a voice and, and began, began to use it, was that part of this journey? Is that something that we should find and allow and support more than we do? Definitely. I entered into my period of recovery, but was still taking psychotropic meds. And personally, once I learned about recovery and learned about substance abuse and decided once and for all that I no longer wanted mind or mood or altering substances in my body, I also looked at the psychotropic meds that I was taking and said, okay, that's some of the same. But for me, I had a therapist who worked with me, who talked to me, who heard me when I talked to her, who allowed my voice to rise up, who I was not made to do anything. And if it didn't sit right with me and it didn't make me feel how it was supposed to make me feel, because I was emphatic, I was not going to be one of those sitting there with my tongue hanging out, knitting carpet out of cigarette butt. And I've seen it. I was not going to be overly medicated where my arm is sticking out like a, a broken wing that can't be fixed. I've seen it. But I was fortunate and had a therapist who heard me when I talked and listened to me when I talked and valued what I had to say. So when I got to that point where I realized that mm, that's not for me either, I realized I'm being put to bed by them. If I don't have it, I can't sleep. But I don't want any mind and mood altering substance like this. Something's got to give. Um, and that's another thing that we are in short supply of. We are in short supply of people who are supposed to be assisting us, but don't have enough time, will not listen, believe we don't have a voice, and it's do as I say, and that's it. And that we definitely need to do away with. I am not, I am a peer, first and foremost. So yeah, me and clinical and a medical model, no, we are actually on opposite end. But there is a synergy that should exist. And I welcome that synergy because, again, there are different levels. There might be a time when the medical model is what's working. And there will definitely be a time when peer support is working. And there will be another time when all three need to work together for the common good. But back then, when I was coming through systems, none of that, none of that was there. Even in Rikers Island, and definitely in Rikers Island, because that's where I, miss, I witnessed most of the most traumatizing um, attitudes and practices and behaviors were those with behavioral health issues as well. That's where I saw people with their tongues hanging out because they were over-medicated. And then they would go see someone for 10 minutes, and you sitting there, you are a medical person, you are trained. You see that they're over-medicated. They're in your face for 10, 15 minutes. And you still do nothing because common practice says this is what we have to give you. You know, all of these practices need to go into an individualistic method. So basically, don't fit me in the treatment. Build the treatment to fit me. You know, and that's another problem we have. Nobody's looking at it like that. It's kind of like, you know, how people say, are you a little pregnant or a lot pregnant? Uh, no, you're, you're pregnant. There's no little you know, a lot Skip, about it. Skip, once you have an organization, 
you develop rules and regulations. And what yeah. you're asking for is the antithesis of kind of group think institutional ways mm. of organizing. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. keeping everybody as a partner rather than as a subject. That that's a quite different yes. than, you know, what what happens. I mean, and it doesn't mm -hmm. happen because people are bad. It happens because it is just what organizations and institutions yeah. happen. I mean, they become mm -hmm. bureaucracies. But what I think, Skip, you're yes. you pointing to though, is that after all is said and done in this system, it really comes down to the person that you're with in that interaction. So you mentioned yeah. two things, mm -hmm. the peer, the experience of, of being with mm -hmm. the peer contribute mm -hmm. a certain unique contribution associated with that. And yes. that has, has to do a lot, I think, with the sense of hopefulness. Because once you've lost mm -hmm. the sense of hope, it's all over, right? So what helps a person to envision a different life for themselves that they mm -hmm. can actually make change? The other is you had a therapist and that therapist had mm -hmm. certain characteristics. And that is one of yes. acceptance, non-judgmental, uh, giving yes. you that space to be yourself and, and validating and acknowledging that. So at times we have this big system, but for the individual in it, that system is really represented by who's in front of me so at this me, point in time. Why do we have yes. so What is the issue around, we have so many people calling themselves therapists, right? With all kinds of backgrounds and degrees, but so little of the partnership you and Skip described. I think what, one of the things that- They are trained like that. But yeah, I think Skip, I think that's right. I think what happens is we get socialized into having a lens, if I can speak about lenses, a lens of illness and disease, pathology. And I think what happens is that we can get very overwhelmed by that. When I first started out as, a, as an intern, uh, working with people coming out of state hospitals, you know, the lens that I had was, and it was reinforced by the documentation, by the expectations is your lens is around illness, disease. Is this a 295.3 or 187.4? The idea of diagnosis. And then the idea that the main treatment is medication, because to relieve the symptoms is really what the critical aspects is, and then provide some mm -hmm. kind of like supports. But I think what happens is that's a very different lens of like recovery, which is when I'm with mm -hmm. a person in front of me, first of all, I'm already have the expectation. The default is resilience. The, the default mm -hmm. is uh, mm -hmm. that there's opportunities for this individual. If we can mobilize the right aspects of this system, if mm -hmm. I can engage this person in a very safe, in a, a really safe space where we, we, I'm actually treating you as someone with the expectation of being able to make yes. progress in life. I think that shapes the relationship very differently. But yes. the, I go to the charts and the records, they're kind of getting me, hold on a second, you've got to justify this, that, and the other. I think that's what you were talking about, Skip, when you said mm -hmm. you know, the medical model tends to focus on the source of illness and disease. As, that's what it is, medical necessity. Yeah. I think yeah. it can shape our role. And I think mm -hmm. I had that. I think I had this perception and a lens that was really focused on the pathology. And I got shaped by that. It took my experience with psychiatric rehabilitation and other things mm -hmm. that helped to mm -hmm. expand that, you know, I can approach my clients in a very different way with the expectation mm -hmm. of growth rather than stabilization, avoidance of hospitalization is really the critical so, factor. So the thing you also mm. mentioned, Tony, is our regulatory structure, yes. right? That forces mm. you into behaving a certain way if right. you're running an organization, yeah. right? 
You have to have records. They have to, no matter, and every organization will tell you they're recovery focused. Yes. Every um, mm. surveyor that comes in will talk about recovery and being, mm. you know, uh, not being problem oriented in your medical record. It's all, everyone's got the Strength right based, rhetoric, person centered, yeah. shared yeah. decision making, all, all of that. But one of the things is that we haven't talked about, because, again, I am very focused on, you know, the provision and delivery of service right. and the practical aspects is our payment. Yeah. So most of the organizations um, that mm. are working with people who've been labeled as seriously mentally ill are mm. paid for by Medicaid dollars financed by government through an insurance company, right. a managed care company, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a fee-for-service structure. So I do best when I have people who come in regularly, keep their appointments, and come in maybe even forever because I build mm-hmm. fee-for-service. We talk about value-based, which is another, I think, kind of unicorn because it means a million mm-hmm. different things. But the places I've seen that have been able to be most creative um, goes back to Rochester and the early demonstration project there goes back to Oneida Mm. County and now focused on New York Mm. because we're in New York. There are pockets in L.A. It was, you know, Richard Van Horn's organization Mm -hmm. It was a capitation. Where you have responsibility and a pot of money, it's not easy to work out, but, you know, to Mm -hmm. structurally risk it. But that Mm -hmm. can be used to support people in many different ways, depending upon what they need. Mm -hmm. But we don't ever really talk about that anymore. And there doesn't seem to be a political will because you can't count Mm -hmm. the minutes in that kind of a system. It's very hard. Yes. So I also think that we're, again, driven by how we're organized, and we need to be thinking about that quite differently on a day-to-day basis. And Tony, Mm -hmm. we haven't even talked about prevention and what really, you know, there was a great here looking at children. Does treatment for mental illness or or, or a reasonable income for the family, which is more important. Well, the income turned yeah. out to be more yeah. important. Yeah. So there is a whole issue about prevention being tied with giving people the mm-hmm. ability to live decently. Yeah. You know, yeah. We're, we're actually, Chris, if I can just hold on for a second, because mm-hmm. we're, we're kind of over time in terms of oh. the uh, podcast. They, no, no, no. What I really would like, uh, maybe we can end on, on just sharing what you think is like the critically important message you would like for folks listening to this podcast to get. I know, Linda, your, you know, your message around, we have to take a look at the contingencies in the system because we're, we're not mm-hmm. shaped because people go in intentionally saying, you know, I'd rather be inflexible and very rigid with my clients. I, I really would prefer not to treat them as individuals and just put them into various buckets. No one starts out that way. We, we are all mm-hmm. who get shaped by the contingencies, whether they're, mm-hmm regulatory, licensing related, payment structure, mm. all this kind of like stuff, right? And and then, you know, so for each one, maybe a wrap up of maybe a minute or so, a couple of minutes where, you know, what's the main takeaway that you'd like the folks in the podcast to hear from you? And then we're gonna, we're gonna need, cause I think we can go on for about another two hours easily. Uh, so let's, let's start out with you, Skip. What is it, what would be so sort of your final message to the audience? I think my final message would be to decarcerate as a whole. 
to end the criminalization of behavioral health. One thing we need to look at is to the subject matter experts, those closest to the problems or closest to the solution. Who are those people? Those are the subject matter experts with the lived experiences. Right. I think if we incorporate more lived experiences, more peer support, if we incorporate in every space, SAMHSA delineated the sequential intercept model, which starts from the community and moves on up into re-entry under the community supervision. At every spot on that intercept model is a place where justice peer or peer support can be inserted, which will be very beneficial. Um, more so than sometimes traditional clinical or medical models. The next thing would be to look at how we're training our, our providers, kind of look at that and kind of release that rigidity. Rigidity, I can't say the word. There's some words I can't say. But you, you know what I'm saying? And kind of yeah, release rigidity. that. Yeah. Uh, there was a program where uh, a newly minted psychiatrists were actually paired with peers and people with lived experiences just to talk just to build relationship, just to learn from each other. We need to learn from each other. We need to communicate with each other. We need to incorporate more lived experiences. And we need to look at how politics, racism, classism, and all of that boil down to how we are treating citizens who need treatment, care, and support. Not being dead in the street not being picked up involuntarily, not having any services. But with a combination of all of that, I think we can move into a better space. Oh, and one last thing, let's build up the rungs and levels of support because not everybody needs hospitalization. And there are other ways that we can successfully mitigate crises. It's not always hospitalization. It's not always medication. There's a whole range of other possibilities. And if we stop leaning on those top two, we would see that there's just so much out there. And we need to look at people as people. That's it. Great. Thank you so much, Skip. Appreciate Thank that. You. What are some of the your thoughts about this? Certainly, you know, a lot of what Skip said and you said, you know, I, I totally agree with. Um, you know, I, I think we need to look at it from the lens of prevention, which means what are our policies in this country? You know, we talk about our high cost of health care, but mm -hmm. part of that is because we are not spending money on a social safety net. Um, and so I think that that is at one end. Right. Um, and, you know, you can be a fiscal conservative and still understand that, you know, people um, need supports at various times in their lives. And we have groups of people that have never gotten support that don't have financial capital. And we have to account mm -hmm. for that. So I think that's one end. At the other end is I think we can look at the services we deliver now and reevaluate them, realizing that we have at the table, the advocates are also business people, just like the private sector is. They have a vested interest in what they provide. And I'm not saying it's bad and I'm not saying they're not mission driven, but we have to call that out. 
Because if we're going to come to different ways of doing business, we have to be honest about what we're bringing to the table and government needs to exercise leadership. That's that's terrific. I'm going to end with something that Linda was trying to get at before that we didn't have really an opportunity to do so is that, you know, we're in this phase of thinking about how we can correct or to modify and improve this existing system. But you Mm -hmm. mentioned prevention. And I just want to leave on that note as well, uh, that we don't invest hardly anything compared to what we invest in dealing with the problem after it's already happened. And there is more than enough data and research that's suggesting that the adversity that children experience, you know, the first Mm. five to 10 years of their lives, that you can see Mm -hmm. the clear pathway from ACEs, yes. School to prison pipeline, poverty to prison pipeline, trauma to prison pipeline, discrimination and racism to prison pipeline. It's sort of like recognizing that there are all of these factors that contribute to Mm -hmm. this problem that we're facing and that we're going to spend a lot of time and a lot of expense trying to deal with the problem uh, as opposed to looking at what are the policies we can put in place that would make it much less likely that folks would mm-hmm. uh, kind of enter that. How can we disrupt that pipeline so you don't get into it to begin with? And if you do let's get into it- Let's not build anymore, in yeah. other words. Let's right. deal like, with what we have and we not want to build stop anymore. You. That's exactly right. How do we stop mm-hmm. you from getting in? And if you do get in, how do we have like these exit ramps so that you don't get stuck in it? And if you get stuck in it and you're out, when you get out of it, that you don't go back to it. And, so and it's like a better- how do we look at children and their development and identify Mm -hmm. the places we can intervene? You know, when we look, Mm. and I I know this is a different topic, when we look at the mass killings in schools and you look at the perpetrators who often are also dying by suicide, when you look at their experiences, it's exactly the trauma you described. And people know it. And we Mm -hmm. don't have any systemic intervention around identifying those young children um, Mm -hmm. in school where they spend a lot of time and having Mm -hmm. community solutions. So I would add that as an important element in this. And I think you're absolutely right. We should end on that on that note. And maybe the next podcast is on a discussion around prevent preventive strategies because things have been tested. And even the one you mentioned about Mm -hmm. G is reducing the stress associated with resource insufficiency and and poverty is you relieve that stress. To what degree is that going to have, you know, what are some of the positive outcomes? And Mm -hmm. and that, like, I think gets ignored that that actually is a mental health intervention. Uh, And I think we don't think we can have more practitioners. We get more psychiatrists, more hospital beds. You can have all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. But that's like a lot of resources at the end. So I just want to thank both of you for uh, sharing your perspective. I think this is a very and we want stimulating. To thank you. Always. And definitely well, thank you for very much appreciative of including me and hearing my voice. Thank well, you. Skip, I think we, you. I think one thing that you and others in the Pope Peer community have shaped our thinking is to recognize, and I don't think that was always the case, right. that we recognize the unique contribution and insights that come from those with the lived experience of the system. Without that perspective, we're not going to get very far. We'll keep repeating True. a lot of the same mistakes that True. we've made in, in the past. And so I want to thank you for really expanding and stretching our thinking about the of reimagining a system where peer voice 
is part is integrated within the system across all those different levels. So thanks so much. And I, I know Thank we've gone you. over time, but I think there's there's so much more for us to say. Perhaps we'll have other opportunities. Yes, let's do a part two. Okay, yes. there you go. This has been People, Perspectives, and Policies, a podcast produced by the NYU McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research. To learn more about the Institute, please visit mcsilver.nyu.edu. Thank you for listening.